Hi, this is Graham Brown and welcome to the Excel Podcast. The Excel Podcast is a platform for the bigger conversations about leadership in the 2020s. Who's leading? How are they leading? And what stories do they have to share? Through the stories of leaders, we'll address the big challenges of our times from the era of AI to the Asian century to nurturing a new generation of entrepreneurs. If you're enjoying these conversations, subscribe to the podcast at xlpodcast.org. My next guest on the Excel podcast is Prantik Mazumda, an award-winning entrepreneur, marketer, and investor. He joined the digital consultancy Happy Marketer in 2011 before growing the business to well over 10 million in revenues and engineering a trade sale to Japanese advertising conglomerate Dentsu. Growing a business from scratch to a multi-million dollar trade sale raises many questions, I'm sure, in your minds. How did Prantik and his co-founder Ratchet do it, especially when the business was an agency model? And what do you do once you've scored that big success in your life? Do you, like many entrepreneurs not knowing any other pathway in life, choose to start all over again? Or do you choose to use that newfound knowledge and access to benefit others? For Prantic, success meant not the end, but the beginning. That is the beginning of a new era, a new era of entrepreneurship meeting the world of bigger challenges, i.e. solving the problem of access in public policy, healthcare, education and employment in India and Southeast Asia. That's a challenge that impacts between 1.5 and 2 billion people. But with so many options, where do you start? To find out the answers to all of these questions and to meet my next guest, Prantik Mazumdar, stay tuned to this episode of Excel Podcast with me, Graham Brown. So Prantik, you have achieved what many entrepreneurs strive, dream of in their journey. And for you, it was an eight-year journey from the point of joining Happy Marketer to finally being acquired by Dentsu. You're in the middle of an earnout period. So in total, that would be about 12 years. That's a long time in an entrepreneurial journey from start to final exit. I want you to, for the benefit of the audience, take us back, Prantic, to 2019 when you'd finally done the deal with Dentsu. What was going through your mind? Was it champagne corks popping or were there mixed emotions? Because I think all entrepreneurs are curious, actually, what does that feel like that day you know you've achieved something in your journey? Absolutely. Yes, Feb 19th, uh, 2019. I think that day and the next two days are uh, you know, indelible in my mind. Yes, there was a lot of champagne popping. Uh, we had a lovely celebration with the entire team at Sofitel and Sentosa uh, with their parents, with families, because uh, whilst I don't necessarily agree that a, a startup team is a family, I like the sporting team analogy, but mm. we wanted to express our gratitude to everyone involved because there are people who have been with us for five years, 10 years. And, you know, when an individual devotes time, it's also taking time away and it takes a lot of investments from the mums and the dads and the spouses and the partners. So we had a fantastic ceremony. To be honest, at a very personal level, I was excited. I was uh, unabashedly excited. I felt thrilled. Uh, and I think it has to do a lot with the way the ecosystem or society defines success, hmm. monetary or the term exit. 
but the the journey uh, because the, the whole exit process was a arduous and a long one it was a two year process the other adjective that i would use to describe the whole two year process was uh one that was very very unexpected and surprising because as you know we were a services firm and we were not a vc investable businesses uh we we are not a business uh, or we are not part of an industry that sees that many investments and exits at as the product startup companies do so this came by chance it happened by chance but it was a emotional roller coaster because during that two year period uh, it was probably a roller coaster a sinusoidal curve every two weeks where we wanted to sell but mm. we didn't want to sell we wanted to sell we didn't want to sell and you remember you also had to run the business and grow the business whilst you were going through the due diligence process you know uh ensuring that the books are clean and in order uh so i think having that duality in that process was very very draining and all the more hence the week following feb 19 2019 it it was like a dream i i must admit it felt very good very satisfying uh So yes, it, it mm. that particular week I think was a celebratory spirit, a great moment in our in our uh, history uh, where Rachit and I managed to kind of build and grow and create this company. But it was it was a long, long journey. Yeah, and emotional, I guess as well. What kind of the, you mentioned excitement? Was it all positive at that point? There must have been. You said, for example, that curve. Do we sell? We don't want to sell. We sell. Not sure. That's very typical in an entrepreneur's mind, isn't it? Because there's no way that they can build a business without being emotionally attached. There's a lot of you invested in a lot of Ratchet as well, and we we'll talk about Ratchet in a minute. And there's a lot of people who are part of your team invested in emotionally into the business. What were the emotions? when you finally were back from that sentosa celebration and had time really when the silence allowed you to reflect on everything yeah when the dust settled within a week or two i think the emotion was a bit of nervousness uh, because to be honest for me whilst i had started my career with the singapore civil service and i had worked for a couple of other companies before being part of the happy marketer journey my partner rachit he had never worked for anyone else so we were both nervous that wow you know we're not our own bosses anymore we've sold the company to a large group will we be able to adjust you know right from you know moving from a shop house to mm. a large corporate building it's symbolic but it says a lot you know when we spoke to some of our close colleagues they they were worried that they will have to fill time sheets and use badges to enter you know it's those small things that change your day because obviously when you're in a startup like environment you're working in uh, one of the duxton hill shop houses the environment is very different it is strenuous it is uh, it's obviously a lot of hard work but there is a sense that you know it's our business you know there's flexibility so i would say nervousness we were also at that point in time quite nervous as to you know whether everyone will stick along because many mm. of us had joined us because we were a startup so as we transition uh i think our biggest worry was will people our staff and our clients still want to work with us because one of our usps was being an independent company so i think along with that excitement there was this nervous energy there was this caution there was a lot of uh, unknowns 
Mm. I think that's the emotion that I remember from uh, the second half of February. Many of the entrepreneurs I talk to in that process have that fear that it's going to be pulled from them because the media narrative about exits is, is it's signed, done. And, you know, champagne corks, day one after. It's not like that. It's a long process. There's a lot of due diligence involved, a lot of lawyers involved, a lot of back and forth. And that can be quite stressful for an entrepreneur as well, because A, you have to run a business, but B, you maybe have this doubt that you can go all the way back to where you started, that at any point this could fall through and you'll be you know, looking at years out of your timeline as an entrepreneur, lost in negotiations and so on. It, was that a real fear for you? How did you deal with it if you did have it? Because I think entrepreneurs don't realize that that is a real part of an exit. Absolutely. You know, when, uh, when Ted, a gentleman who approached us in 2017, uh, he was part of the Merkel Group, which is part of the largest brand of the Denso network. He was sent to APAC to grow APAC and acquisitions was a strategy. And we got connected to him through a very dear friend of ours. Uh, to be honest, the first six to seven months, you could call it naivety, you could call it in being denial. Rachit and I were not sure that we want to exit. Mm. Because, you know, on our own, we had charted a 25, 30 year old plan. And, you know, being young boys with ambitions and dreams, perhaps naive, we said, look, there are services companies out of India, out of uh, APAC that have gone global, that have become billion dollar enterprises that have listed on the public stock market. So that honestly was the alternate path. And so we were not very sure what does this you know, exit really mean. Or uh, to be to add to that, we've honestly heard a lot of negative or fearful stories, as you rightly said, about peers in the industry who had that exit. Mm. Uh, and for various reasons, right? The, the, the process, the post-exit process, uh, the financials, there were a lot of concerns. So the first six to eight months, it was us being pricey if you're on the other side. But to us, we were just not sure that this is the right path. Maybe it's too early. But thereafter, we engaged, uh, I think, a couple of things in hindsight, I think we did well, was we engaged a very good uh, iBanker, a, a company called SI Partners that kind of facilitates deals in our industry. Uh, and we hired a very good American law firm, which works with big tech companies. Now, mind you, these are costs that you, got, you have to bear. And so that's kind of taking away profits. But we said, look, if you are going down this route, we'd rather do it well. And, you know, long story short, what these two professional companies did, I mean, SI partners were absolutely thrilled with their effort because two things. One is they helped clean our books. They helped shape the narrative, which eventually allowed us to get a three, you know, from the first offer to where we landed, it was 3x. And a lot of that has to do with positioning, narrative, and helping grow the business during that negotiation period. The other thing that they did well was after every meeting, they would remind us, Remember, you don't have to sell. Hmm. And I think that sentiment is critical that, you know, as they say, the best salesman never sells. The same way you should be, if you're looking at exit, it should not be out of desperation. Hmm. It should be a option. Uh, and there are various other exit options. So I think that reminder was vital because that kind of told us that, look, we will only do this if this is fair, if this makes sense for us and our employees. And, you know, we won't shy away from negotiating hard. The other thing was the law firm. 
uh, we, a, a very dear friend of ours works at this law firm and he was very generous because we were not sure we will we would be able to pay uh, the hefty bills that law firms charge but you know we managed to strike a good balance deal and i think what i learned from that process is yes there are legalese and terms to be you know uh, legal jargon to kind of uh, navigate and kind of negotiate but a lot of this is also about again going back to that sentiment that look you don't have to sell mm. it's a option but ultimately let's push for a fair deal because this is like you said it's a 12 year journey right a third of my life and it's something that you've created and you want to ensure that you know if you're going to be parting ways or if you're going to be giving up this brand or this baby to someone else you want to do justice to the shareholders to the management to the employees to the clients who have entrusted their business uh you know with us for over a decade and remember we are ultimately a services people oriented business so i think it's those sentiments that kind of drove us through that sinusoidal period it kind of helped us uh and it wasn't easy because you know even on the personal front not every member of our family was very happy that we were looking to exit because mm-hmm. a lot of the people especially the you know from uh you know my parental generation or our uncles or aunts or people, you know well wishers for them the word exit perhaps doesn't conjure the same excitement that the startup world you know talks about right wow you've had an exit uh, for many in fact for rachid's grandmom i recollect uh, she thought of it as you know she perceived a business to be a shop so she literally said are you guys mm. pulling the shutter down like what are you guys going to do next in wow. fact our parents still i think their worry is not about the money and the exit but their worry was always about and it still is hey what next yeah you guys have 30 odd years to go in your career like what are you guys going to do uh so that's sort of a you know it's and like you said you're invested both professionally and personally the boundaries are very thin hmm. uh so it's a mixed bag of emotions that we had to live through for two years but i'm glad we did because the learning uh through this process uh was something we couldn't have uh, received otherwise no you're still smiling about it as well so that's the important part and all those emotions that not only you have invested in it the people around you you talk about families as well different expectations there's a lot to manage and your approach to it which was we don't have to sell i feel is perhaps the only way an entrepreneur can maintain their sanity through the process because if their happiness and their definition of success is dependent on somebody else's decision ultimately that's out of your control and those can lead to many sleepless nights let's go back i want to talk about the beginning and let's wind all the way back to 2011 when things were very different for both you and ratchet and i want to talk about the shop house life tell us about your first office what was it like and tell us about the size of the team and you weren't one of the original founders but you'd come from the corporate world and been persuaded or recruited i suppose by ratchet's you know offer of startup life what was that like when you first walk in describe the office environment and it must be very different for you yes absolutely uh so our very first office funnily enough was a small little three seater uh, in one of the hdb buildings in tanjung pagar which funnily to rachit's grandmom's uh, defense had a shutter so every day morning whoever reached office first we actually had to unlock the key and then use this metal rod to pull the shutter up and pull wow. the shutter down it was so like three, a shop then <laughs> it it literally it wasn't a shop house but it was a little shop uh, in near craig road and so that's where rachit and david uh, the two original founders 
had started the office. So that's my first memory uh, when I joined them uh, on November 1st, 2011. And funnily enough, our life has always revolved around Tanjung Pagar. So then we moved to Maxwell House, opposite the famous Maxwell Food Court. Uh, we had a couple of uh, small offices there in across two floors. And then our favorite office uh, was at uh, Neil Road, just at the corner. Uh, there's a KTV below, which, well, today KTVs are not in vogue, but uh, it's a nice little lively area. Mm. Uh, uh, legend has it that Jackie Chan kind of holds, uh, you know, owns a lot of these shop houses there. So that was a great fun time. And then we moved to River Valley uh, before the exit. And well, as life would have it, a full circle. We are back to Goko Towers in Tanjung Pagar. Uh, so our happy market alive, barring a couple of years in River Valley, it's always been around Tanjung Pagar, but small, tiny offices, if not uh, a nice little shop house. And we love that life because mm. we just love that area. You know, Chinatown, Tanjung Pagar, as you may know, the vibe is so different. Uh, the food courts, the bars, the uh, just the the, you know, there are so many small little startups that are, you know, we have, there's this whole community of digital and tech startups that mushroomed from Duxton and Tanjung mm. So really good vibes and good feeling. It's got but creative question, energy around there. Absolutely. A lot yeah. of creative energy because, you know, uh, you, as you said, you, you're going to have probably more bad days than good days. And mm. you just, when you're going down for a walk or a coffee or a beer, it's always good to kind of bump into another entrepreneur and, you know, just maybe went out and uh, share. And uh, talking about my entry, you're right. I think uh, Rachit made this pitch in May 2011. Uh, I was transitioning from my previous role at a digital marketing services startup called Pinstorm, where I led APAC sales. He made a nice pitch saying, look, you're looking out. I, I, I was in the final rounds of interviews at Facebook and LinkedIn. He said, look, why don't you kind of join us? We'll restructure the business and you can be the third partner. Uh, so yeah, he made a Pretty good pitch. I know Rachit right from day one uh, on July 9th, 2001. We have been friends and classmates from university. We've, you know, we've always been in touch in our social circle. So I think uh, the trust and the friendship years. was there. Just 20 noticed. years. Absolutely. How about that? So you trusted that? the guy, but you, you must have trusted him a lot to, I suppose, weigh up the opportunity cost of a salary at Facebook versus a startup. That he no way could he have matched. Well, I don't know, but I think it's quite unlikely he could match the the brand and the salary of, of Facebook or similar. So, what was it for you? I mean, especially looking at the office, you see an office of three guys and or two guys at the time, three seats downtown, and there you are with you know you've got good education, you have family expectations of what young Prantik's going to be. You know, he may not be a doctor or an accountant, but hopefully he finds himself a nice career and a job for life. And there you are, risking it all. What was going on in your head? Yeah, well, wasn't easy. It took me six months to convince myself, my parents, uh, because you're right, uh, you know, entrepreneurship was never part of the plan. The first time I got a taste of what it may look like was back in NUS in 2003, both Rachid and I were part of this initiative called Technopreneurship, a, you know, a top-down government level initiative and partnership with NUS to kind of just, uh, you know, get the young undergraduate students like us to soak in. What does that really mean to develop products, to market, to sell? That honestly got me excited, but I never thought that, you know, I would 
go down that route. I The startup bug wasn't there initially, to be honest. But I think when Rachit made the pitch, and I was also in a phase in my corporate career and in my personal life where I was going through a lot of transition, a lot of changes. And I said, look, uh, I was 28. So I think I took it from a, I suppose, a defensive perspective saying, look, I think I can give myself two to three years to fail. Hmm. Uh, and I said, look, I was lucky. Uh, I think I have the university credentials and the work experience to get another corporate job. I was lucky to have a Singapore PR. Back then when we graduated, we were literally dished out PRs on the day we graduated. Uh, we didn't know the value of it back then. So I said, let's take a risk. Uh, the domain was familiar because it was going to be something similar to what I did at Pinstorm. So it was a lot of nerves. I think the other thing that you mentioned, I think the very fact that Rachid and I were friends also worried me because, you know, you mm. stand to lose a friend and there are plenty of cases where friend, friendships have gone sour. But I think Rachid made a good point. He said, look, yes, we have been friends for nine, 10 years. Uh, we're part of the same social circle. But hey, look, let's face it. What's the worst, right? We won't be friends. Uh, but there's also a chance we may be friends. And why don't we take a chance and make some money together, right? Mm. Even if our friendship goes sour, maybe in the long run, you know, we'll make amends and we'll be friends again. So I, you know, I, I thought he had a very pragmatic view. I thought we had complementary skill sets despite being uh, aligned in terms of our values and outlook towards the world. So that kind of drew me closer to Happy Market and his vision. And uh, lo and behold, October 31st, I said, cool, I'm, I'm starting from tomorrow. So that's how the journey began for me. Well, it's been a great journey. I know you're a cricket fan as well. And I imagine a lot of professional cricketers who fortunately they get to the point where they win, for example, let's say they win the IPL and they're champions. Now the question is, is what do you do next? Because like a lot of entrepreneurs and sports people as well, a lot of different thought processes go through what happens after that big success. Some champions say, for example, that they feel like they have to do it again because maybe they were just a one trick pony. Maybe they got lucky. And as you know, in sport, any sport, defending a championship or a win is harder than winning in the first place because it's not like you're you're all new to the business now now you're thinking about loss what happens if i lose this title and somebody else becomes the champion so that is one thought process and then the, the second one is that the activity that's driven you for so long and you're talking 10 years that you know the intensity is difficult to step away from it's almost addictive that that magic that happens when you're an entrepreneur and you know you're able to create deals or you're just always on the edge a little bit you know it's never fully comfortable but then you pull it off and you win a deal or you win a, a partnership or whatever it may be but all of that then gets replaced by this emptiness and you feel that i have to do it all again because you don't know anything like a lot of sports people they go back into it as well. And you see a lot of entrepreneurs after an exit, the first thing they do is start another one because that's all they know. How about for you? That, that I guess that temptation must be there. That thought process must be there. Or have you sort of like had time to reflect and think about, okay, I want to try something bigger, something different. That's a great point. I think this is something that 
worries me every day on uh, on many different levels is you know if you won the IPL what next do you mm. play another IPL do you go uh, play the big bash league do you go and you know try and win the world cup and i think you know i obviously have a journey as part of the whole exit process but i think the way i've kind of thought about this is literally in the first few months of 2019 after the deal i took a, a bit of a backseat a bit of a break to just kind of soak in the moment uh it was a great year in hindsight because from 2020 we were allowed to travel so uh, i was lucky that in 2019 i took some time off i went for the wimbledon the cricket world cup uh i went to finland with my wife so i think i had a good time to kind of just take a step back and just start thinking and reflecting about this and i my thought process is literally probably from the second half of 2019 i said i got to think about what next and because as you rightly said you know there is a rhythm that's set there is this heartbeat in every entrepreneur there's a rhythm and a process i've always believed that you know more than winning that ipl which is the outcome and maybe this is a cliche i think what's in my control as an entrepreneur as an individual is what do i do today or what do i do tomorrow in terms of practicing so one thing i was very sure is before i set my sight on the next goal so to speak i want to just keep that rhythm going whether within happy market or in densu in terms of being involved uh from a partnership perspective or a large deal hunting perspective not at the cost of other people not getting opportunity so I, i'm also quite cautious that for this business to be sustainable someone else other teams also have need to have the rightful opportunity so we've done that we've kind of had a succession planning where sanchit our third partner he's driving the day to day operations i've taken on a role at densu to drive partnerships to look at the pnl so there is it's not that i've taken a back seat and i'm you know sitting at home or chilling at a beach uh, there is a regular rhythm i think that's critical you you know you've got to do your net practice whether you're playing mm. club cricket or ipl but i think in the pursue of what next uh, i spoke to a few mentors i spoke to a few people who have kind of are doing this or have been there done that and they said look if you maybe a good path is in the next 3 to 4 years at least chart out what are the options and then you know kind of dip in your feet to see what excites you so the four options in my head broadly are yes i could start again uh what i know is if i do start again this time round i would want to give a product startup a go because i've only done a services business and i want to see how does that work the investment route is interesting uh so i have started dipping my feet into angel investments startup advisory i'm part of a few vcs i'm doing a few late stage pre ipo deals and the third is academia so i've kind of uh been in touch with inciad and my alma mater nus as an entrepreneur in residence because a that kind of keeps me plugged to the youth to gen z to see what are they up to and also gives me a chance to kind of give back if that's required or if there is value in that but you know all of these are part of a game plan to figure out what's next i haven't mm. figured that out what the next ipl equivalent is but i definitely know that i want to stay in touch i want to play every day so to speak i want to be in that rhythm and practice because a that's in my control and b that's what i enjoy it's a discovery process isn't it this is important that you have to step out of the activity the whirlwind of entrepreneurship to really understand what it is that's important to you i sold a business in 2012 had a business partner and interestingly it was 12 years old as a business so i can understand that life cycle involved in how much activity 
takes place in those 12 years and how much you grow and individually how you both grow on different paths as well. And in 2012, I sold and the natural reaction was to start again, but I decided with my wife and my son, who was six at the time, to travel the world. And we traveled the world for four years. One of the things I thought, for example, that success meant is lying on tropical beaches and looking at sunsets and Instagram friendly photos. But I realized after a while, actually, that didn't excite me. What I really was driven by was other people. I really enjoyed, you know, one of the things about entrepreneurship is the camaraderie, isn't it? Whether it's your business partner or the people you meet, you meet some amazing people, mentors, clients, even who you really connect with, who you wouldn't meet normally people on a similar path, similar spirit, if you like, from a similar, they may have completely different backgrounds, but they're all sort of heading in a similar direction facing similar challenges. And I missed all of that lying on a tropical island, you know, in places like Okinawa and Fiji. And I thought, well, I want to get back into that. And only could that had come to me if I took time out and, you know, I was lying on a tropical island thinking about this, because if I started another business, you know, I might have kicked off and then thought, actually, is this what I really want to do? So I think, you know, that point of reflection and what do I really want to do? And then it sort of goes back, doesn't it? What am I really passionate about? what makes me happy? Because now you have choice. Now it's about what do I want to do in my next chapter, not what do I have to do? So what is it for you? You're still in the discovery process. We all are. Nobody has the answer seriously. That makes you happy, Prantic. I know you enjoy cricket as one, so we put that out there. Um, But I don't think you're going to become a professional cricketer at this late stage, a bit of tennis. But what really makes you happy and what, where are you in your zone? Yeah, I wish I could play cricket professionally, but even if I did, that was going to be a short shelf life and I you know, need to figure out what next. Yeah, that's a good question. I, you know, and I kind of keep reflecting on this as to when is it that I feel in the zone? When do I get, what are those goosebump moments? And you know, the more I think about it, the more I discuss it with my wife and my parents, I think the answer kind of comes, I kind of see it like a Venn diagram. And in the Venn diagram, there are a few components and it kind of comes down to, can I play a role? Can I use my entrepreneurial and digital skill sets and my uh, know-how of technology and my know-how of building ecosystems and partnerships? How do I take that and juxtapose with some of the challenges in society? And the two that we have narrowed down, my wife and I, is education and healthcare. And the reason those two matter to us is because it stems from the belief and the experience that if the starting point in life is the same for every human being, I think there's a lot of potential to be harnessed. Both of us grew up in India, Indonesia, and then we came to Singapore. We were extremely fortunate to have very good education, uh, right? You know, school, college, we had all the ECAs that we wanted to do. She uh, played a lot of sports. She did a lot of modeling, dancing. She also kind of uh, did theater drama. On my side, I did a lot of sport, typically outside of academics. The point was I had the access. And to me, what I want to really focus on, hopefully in my next chapter, uh, whether commercially or through a social enterprise, is to figure out how do I take my skill sets, my assets, my network, and apply to creating equitable opportunity by giving youngsters access to good quality education and basic healthcare 
Because if you do that, data and science shows that if you have equitable access, that takes care of a lot of the global problems that we are dealing with, social crimes. You're talking about you know, inequality in society. You're talking about manpower shortage in many countries. right? So that's where my honest heart lies. I think, like you, when I meet people, I get energized. But when I'm in a position to help someone, be it for a job, be it for a, a reference, be it for just, you know, sometimes, I mean, last year we did a lot of, we had the opportunity to do a lot of charitable work uh, for the COVID-related uh, challenges in Indonesia and India. And I think the joy from that, not from a point of, I mean, yes, it is from a point of privilege, but I think more than the money, it was the the joy came from the fact that we were able to rally people. We were able to mm. rally society, different pockets of society to come together, act in unison and contribute and do something that's meaningful. Yes, money can't solve everything, but I think money can give you options. Money can solve a few things. So that's honestly where I think I'm in my zone, where I'm using whatever I have to do something for not just someone else, but hopefully at scale, because I've seen the value of running a business and scaling a business. Uh, so, you know, my wife and I, we have this passion that, you know, can we create a movement where each one saves one or each one teaches one? And today we've seen various edtech, fintech, healthcare models where sitting in Singapore, sitting in Zanzibar for all I care, we could kind of do that. Um, mm. So that's where honestly my heart is. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting journey. That one, Frantic. I was, uh, I was listening to Bill Gates talk about his life post Microsoft. And I think Bill Gates is obviously, I think he's a little bit understated in terms of his contribution. I know he can easily be criticized for being a billionaire, richest man in the world or was, uh, but he has pledged a significant chunk of his wealth to charity. Um, and not everybody, every rich person has done that as well. But I, I've, what I thought was really um, inspiring with Bill Gates was he was talking about all the causes that he could be involved in. Obviously, a man with such access could do anything. And that's the problem of having $80 billion sitting around is that you can do anything. And therefore, a lot of people are asking for help and you would never get anything done. And he was saying he spent a lot of time almost like going into the wilderness and doing his research. And he said, what causes would best benefit from him? And where could he have the biggest leverage? And he went in as if he was solving a software problem, as if he was solving it as a scientific experiment. And then after all his research and talking to people, he came back and surprisingly, he said, um, you know, the number one problem that I want to solve in the world is diarrhea. And people were like gobsmacked. They're like, of all the glamorous you know, climate change or you know the, the very trendy subjects, why did you choose this? And he said, well, it's the biggest killer in the world. And it's actually probably the one that we can all fix because it's all come down to sanitation and good quality water. And that can be provided to everybody. But the problem was, is that people like him weren't touching it because it's just not as a brand, a great brand to associate yourself with. But I was really inspired by how he approached that and thought, what would be the best application of my skills and all my assets? For yourself, Prantik, I know you're very passionate about ed tech, education, healthcare, employability as well. Where do you feel, are you still in that process? Where do you feel 
you are gravitating towards in terms of applying your assets, your skills, your experience, your access to help people? Yeah, I think what people like Bill Gates have done is phenomenal. I think, you know, a couple of other people that come to mind who've kind of inspired or continue to inspire my thought processes, you know, Nobel laureate Mohammed Yunus, uh, even uh, Mr. C.K. Prahlad who wrote about, you know, uh, the bottom uh, part of the pyramid. I think, you know, from all of these inspiring stories, I think what really comes to my mind is, I think, a couple of things is, A, what leverage can I bring to the table with the assets or the knowledge or the know-how? And the second thing is, I think it's okay to start small. I think we've all heard Mohammed Yudhanis' stories when he saw uh, that lady in Bangladesh kind of making that basket who was unable to kind of purchase raw materials. So I think whilst the ambition is to go big and to scale something, I think it's fine to start small. And I think personally, if I have to pick one area at this juncture, it's good basic education that leads to employability. And I think that distinction is important. I think today in many parts of our society in India, Indonesia, etc., I think education perhaps is missing out on trying to figure out your classical education model as to, okay, you know, when I was growing up in my family, I think in India, especially, I mean, unless you had a master's degree or an MBA, you know, mm-hmm. you were, we were worthless. And funnily enough, I didn't end up doing a MBA or a master's degree. And a lot of my family members would question me, what's wrong with you? I mean, why would you not do that? And I think, again, it's, a, it's an individual choice. But to me, I think one needs to connect the dot as to what kind of education do we need to impart? Uh, you know, a mix of academic and pragmatic knowledge, which should lead to employability. And I think the good news is that I think today, thanks to technology, thanks to globalization, the opportunity for employability is plenty. You know, you can be an RJ or DJ, you can be a sports psychologist if you want to be. Uh, So I think there needs to be an awareness and it all starts with changing mindsets, apart from, of course, creating platforms that take, that ensure that even a, uh, you know, a young little boy or girl in a village in India or Indonesia Mm. should have hardware and software access and financial access to that education. I think people like Salman Khan with the Khan Academy, I think they've proven over the last decade that the technology part is relatively easy. Even content, there's enough and more content out there today. It's really about solving for policy, solving for financial access, solving for basic hardware broadband access. You know, During COVID, we've had so many cases back in India where schools were closed because they just didn't have broadband or they didn't have enough uh, mobile devices for home-based learning. And that's unfortunate because, you know, if you look at the macro picture, hardware costs are coming down. Hmm. Many of us have the blessings of, you know, three or four devices at home, which are probably sitting in drawers. So I think it's always, access is always, you know, whether it's water, whether it's sanitation, whether it's hardware devices, the challenge is equitable distribution. The world broadly, uh, you know, if one can figure out equitable access and distribution will solve for a lot of things. At this juncture, in the next three to five years, if I was to solve, or my heart is in, you know, desires to kind of solve for that, is tomorrow, even if there's one student where if all it takes is a mobile device with a 4G connection, I mean, I would just jump and ensure that, you know, uh, if I can, if I can, I would just go and solve for that. And then, you know, slowly the movement kicks in. Uh, and I've always believed, right, there's, there's, a, there's a famous... A song by Tagore, and it, it's been kind of uh, you know made into movies as well. It's called Akla Chalore, which really means walk alone. 
you've got to take the first step. You, you can't wait for the world to kind of come along. Mm. And uh, so that's something that always kind of inspires me is look, if you have a conviction, have the courage of conviction to take that first step, try it out, see if it works or doesn't work, but don't wait for someone else or a NGO or the government to do something. You know, we all have the the assets or the powers to kind of make that small little change in someone else's life because I've seen this. If one student in a family does well, yes, it could take 10, 15, 20 years. If one student does well, an entire family or a generation could change. Mm. Uh, and that is, I mean, to me, the flip side, it, it's it's near criminal not to solve for that because mm. uh, simply because, you know, I, I am where I am today because I had that, you know, the dice came out on the right side when I was born. Uh, that's, you know, one of the fundamental reasons that I had a good starting point. And I think everyone deserves that. Yeah. And the energy is there, isn't it? You talk about young people. There is a wonderful case study and I think there are videos on the internet of a project. I can't remember the name of it, but maybe you know this. It's definitely worth the listeners to check out where they installed a laptop or PC computer in a village in India and they stuck it in a wall and they left it there with this screen and a mouse and a keyboard and it had internet access and power, but no instructions. And they left it there and they run this camera on it and videoed it. And you can see this on YouTube somewhere. And it's really fascinating. Like, firstly, the old people in the village looked at it and thought, what's that? And then they discussed it and walked away and then came back and looked at it. And then the kids started gathering around and, you know, they'd be like four years old, five years old, 10 years old. And they suddenly there was like, you know, fast forward the camera. A few hours later, there's a gang of kids around this laptop computer no instructions, never used a computer before. And then they show like day two, like the girl's using a mouse and figured that out. And now she's teaching another girl how to use it and showing like pointing like this happens and so on. And then in time, you know, over days, they're learning how to use the computer. They're actually figured this thing out. And I'm thinking this is a village in India where they're poor, where they may probably not have any internet connection. You know, lucky if they've got mobile phones in the village as well. And yet here's that energy, that passion, that curiosity. You know, yes, maybe they, the dice didn't land favorably for these guys, but they have all of that kind of entrepreneurial instinct in there, that curiosity to learn, to try, to break rules, to explore. And yet what they're absolutely missing is somebody who can open a door for them and show them and say, hey, look, you know, with all of this, maybe you're not going to get this through the traditional route of going to university. Maybe you will never go to university, but all those skills that you have, they could be useful. And I think that you say it's criminal. That's the untapped talent. There's hundreds of millions of people. But when I think about those kids there and what you're doing as well, that's really positive because there's serious uplift there, Prantik, that those people they're not privileged. They're not lazy. They just need somebody to give them a little bit of access. And I think about those and think that's a really positive future. Absolutely. I think the key words are access, encouragement, guidance. Uh, and, you know, and, and, you know, it's not about being charitable. There, there is great commercial benefit for the economy, for society. 
I just read about, I think it was probably on Instagram somewhere yesterday that uh, one young boy, maybe he's 16 or 17 now, uh, he was raised by a single mom in Dharavi, the largest slum area uh, in Asia, if I'm not wrong. And it's just the mom's persistence and wanting to provide the son good education and access to technology. And today, uh, the photograph was him working on a project in NASA. Right? Wow. And that kind of embodies that. Again, he had basic education, basic devices, but what he probably had is a lot of hunger. He probably saw his mom struggle. Uh, and I think all humans, you know, innately from a perspective of wanting to survive and grow, we probably have a bit of that, you know, in all of us. And I think what really everyone needs is inspiration, motivation, access to resources. You know, even with the ongoing Olympics, I think what's amazing is to see the stories of first time medal winners for uh, for a nation. You know, we saw the weightlifter uh, from mm. Philippines. I mean, to me, it's not just the gold medal. It's going to inspire a generation that look, I can do this too. I can yeah. you know, give a career in sports a chance. So to me, there's so much that can happen. And, and that's the leverage that I'm talking about, right? Each life, there's so much potential. There's so much, uh, and like I said, it's there's so much commercial potential. I mean, think of young nations like Indonesia, India, Vietnam, Philippines, like you said, in this whole, the three countries that I've been fortunate to live, that's 1.5 billion out of the near 8 billion people in the world. And if, and many countries have proven that model. I mean, look at Singapore, it's gone third world to first world within, you know, less than 50 years. China, of course, has had a different model, but again, from the 80s to now, they've become a superpower. Different methods, but again, to me, the answer lies in kind of igniting that spark, giving people the resources and the channels and the guidance and the inspiration. And yes, there'll be magic. Well, I think today they had a glimpse of the spark and what it could be. Prantik, I'm sure there are people who are listening who want to be part of this journey with you wherever it goes next, that they feel that maybe your paths are intertwined by fate somehow. Maybe they're working on a project that something has we've talked about today is relevant to them and to you, or maybe they want to join you on the journey and feel that maybe they can help you and you can help them get to the next level. Where do people find out more about you? Where's the best resource for them to connect with you? I think the easiest way is LinkedIn. I think you can just search for my name, Prantik Mazumdar. It's a public profile. Drop me a DM. Uh, and once we connect, I think uh, thereafter, I think, the easiest way for me to be in touch is via WhatsApp. But I think just sending me a DM on LinkedIn, I'm generally quite responsive and active. That's Prantik Mazumdar, everybody. Prantik, thank you so much for joining us on the show and sharing your journey with us today. Thank you so much. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to the XL Podcast with me, Graham Brown. To subscribe and discover more conversations, go to www.xlpodcast.com. Dot org.